Well, there are many books about lighthouse keepers, and there are many iconic images of lighthouses on our coastlines. Yet the lighthouse keeper was pretty much made extinct by automation back in the 1970s, and in Adrian Jansen's sixth novel, which is called Lightkeeping, the work and the home life of the lighthouse keeper is brought back to life. Adrian's work is all about giving voice to others through writing and publishing. Uh, it's something she's devoted most of her career to, from new immigrants to cleaners and taxi drivers. Her work's been principally about giving space to those we hear from the less. In 1994, Jansen founded the uh, creative writing program at Fitterea Polytechnic in Porirua, uh, and then as a publisher at Porirua in Fitterea Polytechnic, she co-founded Escalator Press in 2013, and then in 2016, independently, she co-founded Landing Press. Adrian's work uh, features in the Fitterea Polytechnic's um, collection of short essays about New Zealand publishing that's just been released, which is called Everything I Know About Books, and we're really privileged to have her here with us today uh, in the studio. Kia ora, Adrian. Thank you. Like keeping a beautiful book. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> it's really wonderful, and I guess it does make us think about the fact that we romanticised the lighthouse keeper, but we kind of got rid of them, didn't we? Well, yes, we certainly did, and um, and it's interesting that when I started writing this book, which I always saw as a sort of generational family history more than anything else, I hadn't actually turned my head to the automation of lighthouses and yeah. the um, the the extinction as you said, of the lighthouse keeper's life. Um, that kind of came in when I was reading a lot more about lighthouses. And then, of course, it became central to the story. But I didn't start from there, which is interesting now when I look back at the novel. It's it's funny in this time of AI, isn't it? Because it reminded me of the whole conversation we're having about AI, about what we might lose. And there was the kind of sense in your book of, of just gently being reminded of the fact that it meant that there was a human eye there, not just keeping the light going, but, you know, on the sea, you know, on everything that goes on on the sea and all that activity and the way that we, we have cameras on our roads and everything else. That's right. And, you know, I'm I'm not a lighthouse expert. Yep. I'm just a person who's raided other lighthouse experts for knowledge. But I was really struck by that because I did read a lot and how the lighthouse keeper has a has a different perspective, you know, and they and they have that human perspective. Well, a, re- a huge and responsibility, right? It would have been a huge responsibility to feel that you wouldn't want someone to die out there on your watch. A, a huge responsibility, and also a whole lot of tiny responsibilities, you know, in terms of um, what they looked out for and who they reported to, and um, yeah, it was. I think it was an amazing life. Yeah, well, I guess More we still we still got our surf life clubs, haven't we? They do amazing work in the looking they out do. to the coast. They do. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of your family history in this book. I understand too, isn't there? Not not with a lighthouse keeper, but 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 a, a descendant. That's right. Yeah. Well, no, we don't have a lighthouse keeper in our family. But um, when I was writing the novel, because I did have this idea of generations of stories, and I realised that um, the story of the of the great grandfather of the lighthouse keeper. Um, his story was very similar to the story of my great-grandfather. So I was writing this fictitious story about um, Robert McBride, the first of the Lighthouse family, and I thought, my goodness, I think I'll just start writing the story of Charles Haywood, who (laughs) was my great-grandfather, who was a seafarer um, around the South Otago coast, was never a lighthouse keeper, but a captain and a, and a um, harbourmaster. And so from that, I then started to pull in quite a lot of family history. And it became fun, actually. I yeah. 
raided, you know, the Haywood family history and the Jansen family history and our own family for all kinds of bits and pieces. So, yeah, it's, it's made the novel quite personal. The, the, you feel like you, you know this lighthouse. For me, when I'm, I'm, I'm reading it, you know, you have a sense of what it looks like, the little house next to it in the garden and, you know, the getting down the cliffs to the rocky shore. I mean, you, you know, was it based on a natural place? I mean, when you're a writer, do you actually, are there bits of lighthouses that we might know in it? Oh, there are bits of lighthouses you might know in it. Um, <laughs> but not just they, one, not one particular. Well, you know, it's called the Faulkner Point Lighthouse, and that's a fictitious name for a fictitious lighthouse. I think it's closest to the Waipapa Point Lighthouse in Southland ah. because it's on the mainland. It's a similar size. It's on the Southern Ocean, but it's not Waipapa Point Lighthouse. It's a composite of a number of lighthouses. And I like that because it means that you're not, you're not constrained by the absolute literal truth of that particular lighthouse. So you can, you've got a bit more scope. Yeah, what a gorgeous, I think the novelist is great here. You can just end up creating this world out of parts of the world that we know and then live in it for so long. Well, yeah, it's pretty nice, <laughs> isn't it? And in fact, the world you live in actually becomes very real, you know, and the characters become very real and you, and you become very fond of them because you spend a lot of time with them. I'm, I'm interested in your research for it. We just had a, a message from a, from a listener this afternoon who said that they met a couple in England a couple of years ago who had never been to New Zealand but told her that their great-grandmother was Mary Bennett, who apparently came to be the first woman to man a lighthouse in New Zealand, the Pencaro Lighthouse. Have you heard yeah, that story? Yeah, I have. I have heard that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I had to do a lot of research, research. It's a, that's a sort of a dry word for something that's fun. Yeah. Um, but Helen Beagleholes a wonderful historian of lighthouses in New Zealand, so I read a lot of her work. And also um, Ashton McGill, who's the lighthouse man at Maritime New Zealand now, um, read some sections of the book for me because I just wanted to make sure that I had some of the internal details correct. Um, and, in fact, he launched the book. Mm. Which was nice. Oh, so, that's lovely. Yeah. So yeah, I you depend on other people quite a bit, I think, just to get to get the details right. Because even though it's a fictitious world, you don't want someone to pick it up and say, "Well, you know, that's all wrong." I mean, there are mistakes in it. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I found a mistake. I think the day that it went off to print, <laughs> um, but hopefully nobody in particular notices that one. Um, but in general, you know, I'd like someone that knows about lighthouses to pick it up and not be thrown by things that are clearly not right. Yeah. You, you live in Tatahi Bay, which is just north of Wellington on the uh, on the west coast there, a relatively wild coast. Are you, um, you, you've got a view, I think, out over the ocean? Yes, we live just above the beach. So we've got a big ocean view. We yep. look north to Kapiti, and a few days in the year we can see Mount Taranaki. Can you? Oh, that's gorgeous! Can oh, you mm? see any lighthouses from where you are? No, no, we can't see. Isn't any that ironic? Lighthouses. We just have to imagine them. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Titahi Bay. It's we're five minutes down to the beach, and I walk on the beach a lot. And it is—it's wild, you know. In a northerly, it's a completely wild beach, and it's never very tidy and clean and there's always something going on so it's yeah I love it. Always something washing up. (laughs) Something washing up yes. Um, Well that's sort of a way of of introducing your work with Fitarea and and, and in Podirua. Am I right in you thinking that for for a long time you were working with you know in sort of refugee resettlement in terms or at least that might have been something you started with quite early in terms of thinking around teaching writing and publishing. Yes, I was. I was involved with what was called the Parua Language Project 
for a long time. So that that's a home tutoring scheme which teaches English users volunteer tutors to teach English to mm. um, migrants, but it's it's never only about just teaching English. You know, it's about the whole settlement process, and I was involved with the, all of that. Um, it was interesting that we came to Porirua as new people at the same time as a whole bunch of immigrants. Refugees right. came to Poru as new people. Because it's a very young city, Poru, isn't it? Very diverse, if we it's use that very word. diverse. It mm. is very diverse, yeah. Very diverse in all kinds of ways. But yeah, I was involved with that for a long time and teaching English as a second language. So that was um, that's always been a great interest to me, the way in which we kind of butt up against each other as cultures and um, learn from each other or don't or... All, all, that whole area is, yeah, it's always been interesting. I, I read somewhere that you you you, start, you you taught in a rural school in Alberta in Canada. Was that before then, before you came? Yeah, that's, that's going back quite a long way. Um, yeah, I did. I did. I taught in a little rural school in Alberta for two or three years. Wow. Um, which is probably when I first started thinking about, wow, there's all these kids in the school who've never written anything. But they can write something. And I taught creative writing because it was yep. a subject. And all these kids who lived on farms and all these various places all wrote something and we made a book out of it. So, yeah, that was the start. You say, it sounded like maybe you got a bit of a bug, the kind of magic of realising that, was it anyone can write, do you think? Do you believe anyone can write? Um, uh, <laughs> or have you had some failures about, along the way? Just, no, I do, actually. <laughs> well, you know, Mark, I could just say to you, OK, let's sit down for five minutes and let's choose a topic and you can write something about it and you will. Well, of course you will because yes. you're a words man. Yes. But I think on the whole most people can write given the right circumstances and some good structure and some good hints and a lot of encouragement. Yeah, I think they can. And that's what we've been doing in the Landing Press books. When you when you started the Fitaraya Creative Writing Course, was that with, you know, did you have a real burning desire to see that sort of education opened up more widely? I, I guess that's an obvious question, really, isn't it? But was oh, that part of it? Uh, I did in yeah. a polytech yeah, environment. Yeah, I did actually. I had done the writing course at Victoria with Bill Manhart. Ah. Still one undergraduate course, um, and it was a great course for me to do. But at the time. I I remember thinking, well, there are a certain number of people that have come to this course, but who wouldn't come? Right. You know, who wouldn't go to a creative writing course in a university? Well, lots of people wouldn't go. Lots of people won't go to a university writing course. And we don't want the literary landscape to be entirely populated by people who are comfortable going to a university writing course. Yeah. So that was quite a driver um, in starting the Federal Creative Writing Course to make it much more open, and the fact that it was in a polytech, the fact that Federal Polytech was quite new and young and flexible, and so there was an opportunity there to do that. So, do you think you were successful in terms of that happening? Because it's been a, I guess I really wanted to ask you about it. It's it's been a strange time in tertiary education, how it's changed over the last few decades. Um, it felt like there was a really great sense of opening up education to people maybe in that time, but, but maybe it's become more difficult. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it has become more difficult. Um, that course was a casualty of a, of a major axe-wielding process at Fitiraya three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, and it was probably inevitable. Um, I think, th you know, there are lots of things that have conspired against 
certain courses it's harder for mature students because the fees are so high um oh i think there are a lot of things i think yeah that's a, that's a huge question well it's an irony that it seems to be these polytechnics at least from I, I i may be a little naive here but there seem to be a lot of talk about making sure they get the international student numbers in the fee-paying students which is quite different from you know uh, recent new immigrants who who don't have a lot of money to spend on education yeah yeah. yeah, I think I think there is quite a lot of work being done on that, looking at what the barriers are to tertiary education and how to remove those barriers. Um, but I think there's a way to go, and um, it does seem to ebb and flow a bit, doesn't it? Mm. Maybe so, we're mm. on an ebb. So when did you leave Fitaraya then? Oh, well, I left kind of progressively. Um, <laughs> I But I finished up there in 2019, which is when the writing course was... Um, finally axed. Oh no, they yeah. did continue some online courses and I'd written some of those courses but I wasn't interested in teaching them. Yeah. And I was keen to move on to other things anyway. Why weren't you interested in teaching them? Just Oh, I really like face to face. Oh, I you know, see. Yeah. I mean I was happy to write those courses but I really do like face to face in everything. Um so I didn't want to teach an online course. Now, recently I read, um, so you set up a uh, what, you, you, Landing Press, you set up, co-founded. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about it. I, I read a book of the Landing Press. It's called Somewhere a Cleaner in the last couple of years. I was totally bowled over by it because it was this incredible diversity of voices from cleaners, people that work, and, and talking about writing about their experience. Um, why, why did Landing Press start? Well, um, Landing Press started because, um, uh, now, what's the short answer to that? Uh, we could we could start with the long answer if you want. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll just do the short answer. Well, three of us started it. Um, we wanted to publish poetry that lots of people could enjoy. And increasingly, we wanted it to have a social edge. Um, we were interested in um, ways in which poetry can push it boundaries a bit. And increasingly, we wanted to include voices that aren't normally heard. It, it took us two or three books to really define what our territory was. But by the time we got to somewhere cleaner, we'd kind of figured it out. Mm. So um, we, so we, um, for all of the books that we've done, we send out for submissions like every other publisher does for an anthology. And a whole bunch of people like you and me will send back poems, but only people like you and me. Right. And so, we realised that the submission process, which is so standard with lots of anthologies, really only includes a, uh, a certain group of people. And there's a whole other group of people that will never apply because a, they don't have the information or they don't have the confidence or they haven't had the opportunity to write. And we became very interested in that group of people. So with the book you mentioned, Somewhere a Cleaner, we got lots and lots of poems and some really great poems from um, well-known New Zealand poets and middle-of-the-road getting-established poets, yep. and about 90% of them were from Pākehā writers, yeah. and that's not the cleaning population in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought, okay, what we really want is we want to represent the cleaning population. Now, that the book before that, we'd run a lot of workshops to get those poems, but um, somewhere a cleaner we actually did in 2020 when we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Oh, wow. We couldn't run workshops, so we just went and found cleaners. 
So, um, what do you mean? You just went and found cleaners? We, we literally went and found cleaners. We, um, <laughs> well, I went to the Wellington railway station. Yes, and I went to the information kiosk and said I'd like to talk to a cleaner. I mean, it sounds incredibly <laughs> brash, doesn't it? But she was very helpful, and she said, "Go and talk to that woman over there," who turned to be a gift. It turned out to be a gift. And that woman said to me, well, there's another woman who comes through here, ah. here and you need to talk to her. And um, I, so we, did, we found people like that. We phoned up high-rise companies and said, can we come and talk to one of your cleaners? And we talked to people who cleaned office blocks. And the thing is that it's when you talk to people, we, we've, I mean, I guess my particular approach is to say, just talk to me about your work. And I write down absolutely word for word what they say. Yes. And then we'll take that and together we'll shape it and we'll talk about the fact that a poem has a bit of rhythm, doesn't have so many words, um, and we can um, together shape into a poem. And then they say, wow, look at that. And they're immensely proud of it. The bean counters would hate you, though. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, enormous amounts of work to actually get that true diversity of voices in publishing. It is. And, in fact, I think, you know, we bandy around the idea of diversity a lot, but, in fact, it's a lot of work. It really is a lot of work. But if I can just add one other thing about that book, which we were actually really proud of, was that we thought, because we're really into big launches of books. Yes, and for that book, we thought, well, here we've got all these cleaners, um, and cleaners have no status, so let's give them a really high-status launch. <laughs> so we launched it at Parliament, which just felt fantastic, and we had a great launch for it. It's so it's so inspiring. Have you got a, another collection in the works with another group of underrepresented people? We do, actually. <laughs> well, after cleaners, we did a book on housing um, because we felt that really was the big... Um, issue at the time. Yes. So we included a lot of people who were genuinely homeless, people who lived in caravans and everywhere else, as well as some very well-established, well-known writers, because they kind of anchor the collection. And at the moment, we're working on a collection about generations. Generations? Generations. You mean between... Between... uh, How how are you doing that? Well, um, we've this time we've done a bit differently. So we've had a range of people running workshops for us in rest homes and um, with various organisations, with a homeless group, um, and we're um, putting together that anthology as we speak almost. Sounds like it keeps you very, very busy. Mm. Um, um, are you, have you, and there are any other novels we've got light keeping now? Is there going to be some more, some more books of your own to come? Um, no, um, light keeping's it for the meantime. I haven't thought about anything else. Um, <laughs> but um, who knows? But in fact, at present, yeah, landing press takes a lot of my time. That's wonderful. Adrian Jensen, thank you for joining us. Um, that's Adrian Jensen here with us on Culture 101 on RNZ National. Her book, Lightkeeping, uh, is out now. Um, and we also mentioned a book that's come out from uh, being published by Fidorea Publishing. Um, it's called Everything I Know About Books. It has short essays by 75 writers, and she's one of those. I can thoroughly recommend both of those books. They're really worth getting hold of.